Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Story time. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems, too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from noom like evan who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds salads generally for most people are the easy button right for me that wasn't an option i never really was a salad guy that's just not who i am but noom worked for me get your personalized plan today at noom.com real noom user compensated to provide their story in four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. My roommate and I were driving to Estacada for pie and coffee. I saw a reflection of what appeared to be eyes alongside the road between the road and river. Then, as we came closer, driving, I saw what appeared to be a human-like head, shoulders, and forearms behind a tree, above a horizontal tree limb. It startled me because I had never seen anything like that before. We drove for another mile or so, and neither of us said a word. Finally, I said, Kevin, did you see something back there? He said yes. I asked him what he saw and described to me what I just wrote. The next day, we went back to the site to see if maybe we could figure anything out. That limb was about 7 feet above the ground. It was dry, and we didn't see any tracks. Across the highway, there was a swamp with a cliff behind it and timber and farms beyond that. There was a game trail diagonally from the highway to the river, which is about 75 feet away. That's all. Description of creature, it must have been around 10 feet tall, judging by the limb we saw it behind. Dark brown in color, short neck, wide body compared to me, 6 feet 4 inches 240 pounds. Late one fall evening in 1978, around 2 a.m., our horses suddenly became very agitated and noisy. Figuring a bear may be prowling about, my son and I grabbed flashlights and our 30-30 and hurried off to investigate. By now, 
The horses were very upset and in danger of hurting themselves in an effort to get away from the bear. I was fearful that the bear may have entered the corral. When we arrived at the corral, whatever animal was present was crashing off into the brush, we could hear it. The horses were terrorized. To our amazement, a seven-inch diameter tree, which had served as one of the posts of our corral, had been snapped and bent over. It seemed odd that a bear would do this, but we had no reason to suspect otherwise. We shined the light off into the woods but were not about to go tracking off into the dense woods at that time of night. We did not want to enter the corral with the horses worked up the way they were. We decided that they were slowly calming down in our presence and we may as well go back to the tree to take a better look at how it was broken. That is when I came to know a fear that I didn't think possible. At and around the base of the tree were footprints which were obviously not bare. As we looked closer, the slow realization came upon us that these footprints were very large and very human-like. As the unthinkable became obvious, I felt a tingling wave sweep over my body and the feeling that I was not present in my own body, but merely an observer from a distance. I could not accept what I knew was true. The prints were deeply implanted into the soil at the end of slip marks that were about 8 to 10 inches long. At the end of the slip marks were the deepest imprints. Five very human-like toe prints. I believe this was caused by the animal's foot as it dug in to brace itself to break the tree. This is the first I have talked of this incident. Soon after it happened, I sold the property. I was never comfortable there after that night, always feeling. I was being watched. To this day, I still suffer nightmares where I hear panicked horses and awaken to the vivid sight of those footprints lit in the flash of a lightning bolt. I had always been an avid and capable woodsman and hunter. I know game and the ways of wildlife. This is something that I cannot explain. You can use this as you wish. I am now 67 years old, and I think it needs to get out. Only my son, who sits with me as I write this, and I know what really happened that night. We agreed to tell my wife and daughter it was a bear and wiped out the prince. We do wish to remain anonymous as we feel our credibility and prestige in the area would be damaged. We are one of the largest landowners in the county. Long drag marks of something very large were pulled through a small clearing and then through very dense clumps of Oregon grape, huckleberry, and what I would guess was manzanita. These shrubs and small trees had significant damage to them. I would have discounted this as the work of a bear, but for the fact that the damage reached a height in excess of 10 feet on the scattered trees along the drag path, and the drag marks continued for almost 200 yards before gradually diminishing, all while going up an incline. About two hours later, my cousin and I were on the southeast side of Baldface Creek and noticed a large, at least 7 to 8 feet tall, animal covered with dark brown fur sitting on a stump, yes, sitting on a stump, watching us directly across from where we were hiking. The animal stood, made a gesture, and strode off into the surrounding forest. Curious, we decided to try to get a closer look. As we descended toward the bottom of the hill to the creek, we heard a large amount of noise and turned to see that not 100 yards more, and we would have run into a bear and her cub feeding off the berry bushes along our previous path. To this day, I am unsure of the creature I saw and question whether or not it was motioning my cousin and me out of potential danger. Other witnesses, there were a total of five people that witnessed the drag marks and damage to vegetation by the old deserted mining camp, and two witnesses that observed the animal, Bigfoot. Environment, this incident occurred at a confluence of two mid-sized creeks at the base of Biscuit Hill, which to my knowledge is around 3,275 feet tall. The main vegetation for this particular area is mostly a mixture of pine and fir, with thick areas of manzanita, I believe this is the shrub, huckleberry, and Oregon grape. I was a part of a Navy SEAL team called SACOP Recon. If you know anyone who was a Navy SEAL they'll tell you they never heard of us which is by design. They'll think you mean spec ops. We're above that. Spec Ops guys don't even know we exist. 
the team operates within special access programs, all of which are programs and projects that have the highest security clearance the US government uses. I can't tell you any of the things I worked on and I wouldn't if I could. Let's just say that if the military or an intel group needed to see or do anything underwater that no one could know about and that also required knowledge of technologies and information that even regular SEALs aren't cleared to have access to, they'd send us in. Our job was to survey the site in detail. Not like you see on National Geographic, where they do some sonar scans and sit back and write a paper about it and pat themselves on the back. They take years, sometimes decades to do what we have to do in a few days. We map out every inch of the area with high-quality sonar, infrared, visible light, x-ray, backscatter microwave, and a few things I can't mention. By the time we're done, if there's a dime sitting buried in the sand on the ocean floor you can find it in our data. Our work is quickly processed and handed over to our sister team called SACOPSTRIKE. Normal SEAL teams call these guys fire teams. They do everything from sabotage, disarming mines, to underwater combat. Yes combat. Actual underwater combat. They have special weapons designed to work underwater and I'm not talking about mere knives and spear guns. Anyway, it was 2013 and we were sent to the Baltic Sea with orders to check out something that had recently been found on the ocean floor by some sunken treasure hunters. It's called the Baltic Sea Anomaly. The Swedish government had quietly shut the treasure hunters' study of the object down and made them sign national security oaths to keep their mouths shut and play it off like they can't find funding for further expeditions. Meanwhile they called the US for assistance. They have their own divers of course, but this thing was shutting down any and all electronics that came within 200 feet of it. They were stumped. The object itself was located about 300 feet below the surface and was just sitting there on the ocean floor. It was almost perfectly round except for a few sections that looked as if they had been cut out. It had the basic shape of that ship Han Solo flew in the Star Wars movies, the Millennium Falcon. The treasure hunter's original sonar image had been published before the Swedes had the situation under control so the public was already theorizing it to be a UFO. It was not. The object sat at the end of a long trail in the sand that stretched out on the bottom and into a ravine that appeared to be cut out of a small undersea mountain. This gave the impression to some that this was a crash landing scar on the ocean floor where the object had slid to a stop upon its sinking. It was not. I was looking forward to the challenge of performing a reconnaissance mission without the aid of electronics. We brought a few devices with us just in case, but were fully prepared and expecting not to be able to use them. We even had underwater flares in case our lights shut off. Our mission was simple, determine the basic nature of the object and survey its exterior in detail. This sounds easier than it is. Especially without cameras and electronics. To determine the nature of the object we use the null hypothesis approach. This is where you try to rule things out by attempting to disprove your hypothesis. In this case we were acting on the hypothesis that the formation was natural in origin. Was it sandstone or a buildup of sediment that just happened to form a shape that coincidentally looked like a construction? Deep down I was thinking it was probably some World War II equipment that had been scuttled or blasted off of a ship during the war. Maybe the base of a large ship-mounted gun. But why would it be knocking electronics out? And how? At any rate all of us were geologists, marine biologists, and oceanographers so we knew exactly what to look for. I know that might sound odd to you. You have to understand that knowing what we are doing in all situations that we might encounter is what the military was paying for. You are not deployed in our group without these skills. If you don't want to do the schooling stay in the regular SEALs. In addition to our skill set our team only had two squads of three men each and no commanding officers. All six of us were officers of equal rank. We designed the missions ourselves and operated with extreme self-discipline. If you need an officer to tell you what to do, then you aren't fit for our kind of work. The Navy learned the hard way a long time ago that a commanding officer's ego can ruin a mission in certain circumstances. And while it might be necessary to have one when the men under him need that to perform, in the case of SEC op missions they only get in the way and risk lives and mission failure, and we did not fail at our missions. 
It wasn't allowed. Teams in the old days had to keep shanking their commanding officers to ensure mission success and finally the Navy just started letting us do our thing. My squad was going to start by taking samples of the surface material that had settled or otherwise built up on the object. We would drill through it with diamond-tipped hand-powered drills we had to determine what the object beneath was composed of. We'd do this with the aid of special chemistry test kits we had which were designed to work in ocean water. Remember, we couldn't use spectrometers because electronics were useless. The other team was going to examine every inch of the thing looking for signs of manufacturing. Both teams would also create a map of the object's magnetic field and variance if there was any, using only handheld compasses and underwater pencils. Yes, we were that good. We began our dive when the sun was exactly 45 degrees above the horizon. This would provide enough light so we wouldn't need to use our flares for most of the day. We didn't bring air tanks except small ones for emergencies, and instead had hoses coming from the surface, supported by airbags every 50 feet. This would allow us to stay down as long as we needed. The strike team was topside in the boat making sure the air pumps were working and preparing for whatever they might have to do once we came back with our assessment. They weren't expecting to have to do anything as we all assumed that this was either a piece of wartime hardware or an ancient ruin but they were prepared anyway. They always were. On the way down, I noticed there were no fish or life of any kind in the waters around us. Usually that time of year you could find flounder, herring, cod, and other species of fish swimming about. Maybe it was an odd coincidence but I found it noteworthy just the same. As we approached the object a strange feeling came over us. It was an unusual feeling for us all. It was mild fear and apprehension. We had all been in much more dangerous situations than this before and we were trained not to fear. We didn't fear death, injury, or even drowning, yet all of us reported the same sensation. We wore special dive masks that covered our entire faces so we could speak to each other. Sound travels well in the water and so as long as we were close enough we could all discuss what we needed to. We agreed to continue the mission in spite of this feeling but to make sure we kept each other aware of any increase in feelings of duress that we might experience. We soon arrived at the object and split up into our respective squads. Up close the object was clearly not a natural formation, but we would go through our process anyway to be thorough. The object was somewhat flat on top except for a small perfectly smooth dome on the right side. To the left side there was a stairway going up to the flat top. The right angles and straight lines on the object had been dismissed as a rare but real natural phenomena that occurs due to the molecular nature of certain types of stone combined with water erosion from tides and currents. But here the stairs were sandwiched between flat stone walls on both sides which would prevent water from moving in the necessary directions to erode the stairs into the perfect steps that they were. I chipped off a small chunk of the material on the side of the structure and put it into my test kit's receptacle, squeezed some chemicals into the enclosure, and shook it. I already knew but the resulting color of the mixture verified that the object was indeed covered with a thick layer of silt and sand that had built up, compacted, and hardened over time. It must have taken a long time to get into the state it was in because that part of the Baltic Sea didn't have a lot of turbulent water or natural silt. I got the drill out and turned the hand crank as the bit sunk into the caked on silt and sand. It went down about 4 inches when it hit the underlying structure. I withdrew the drill, blew the silt out of the hole with a turkey baster type of device we use, and looked in. I recognized the material right away. It was coarse-grained granite. Pink, black, and white specks together. The surface of the object wasn't just made from granite which shouldn't be found at the bottom of the sea, but it was polished granite. Perfectly flat and smooth. I cleared off some more of the compacted sand covering the area and showed it to my team, Brent, and David, both of whom were busy mapping the magnetic variance of the object. David swam over to the other squad to inform them of the discovery while Brent showed me the map they had made thus far. It was unbelievable. They drew on a plastic sheet that had a sketch of the object on it with a special kind of grease pencil that worked underwater. The lines they drew around it represented the distance from the object where the magnetic field the object emitted varied from standard north or south, 
and each line had a number on it indicating how many degrees off from the expected compass reading it was at that point. According to the map, the object was pulling the compass needle a full 45 degrees away from magnetic north towards itself. This effect was not present at the surface as we had checked before descending. Just then David swam back over and told us that the other squad had found something that we needed to see. We met them behind the object where the bottom of the structure met the ocean floor. The men had discovered a small doorway. My squad volunteered to go inside. We removed our air lines and hooked up our emergency air tanks, each containing about a half hour of air. It was dark inside the passageway and so I lit up a flare. We were in a hallway that led back towards the front of the object, but underneath it. The walls had less silt on them and we could wipe it off with our hands down to the polished granite. About halfway back the passageway ramped upward and we walked up and out of the water into a large room inside the structure. The room was dark and cold. My flare lit the walls and ceiling revealing the same polished granite as the outside. There were engravings in the stone wall every 4 feet or so. The ceiling was about 12 feet from the floor. The room was a half circle in shape and had three granite tables that resembled altars a little bit, one on each side of the ramp and one behind it. The rest of the room was bare. I tried to turn on my flashlight and as expected it did not work. David started sketching the images on the engravings which appeared to me to be depictions of human sacrifice. In the images, the rituals were taking place on the top exterior of the very structure we were inside. It was clear from the scenes depicted that this building wasn't always underwater. Either the oceans had risen since it was in use, or the land had sunken. Brent pulled me over to one of these engravings and pointed. There in the image was some creature devouring the sacrifice. The men in the scene weren't sacrificing people to some deity, they were feeding a monster. It was like a man in that it had two legs and feet, however at the waist it appeared to have about a dozen tentacles coming off its body but no arms. It did have a head though but it looked more like a giant mouth gaping open with a large teeth. The thing had large feathers coming off its back and the top of its head as well. I've never seen anything like it depicted before however there are some Aztec and pre-Columbian figures that are similar in a few ways. Brent and I quickly measured the room's dimensions and did a walkthrough, covering every square foot of the place. We found a stone door that appeared as though it was supposed to rotate on a central shaft, however we could not get it to budge. We discovered a stairwell that descended downward, but not back into the water. This went down into stone. We surmised that the structure had been built on top of an even larger rock or mountain that was now buried by the seafloor. We descended the stone stairwell, which was not made of the same granite as the upper chamber. Instead this material looked like standard seafloor basalt. The stairs ended about 40 feet down into a small antechamber. There were some relics on the floor there, a spear and a set of ankle shackles. Both appeared completely oxidized to the point where they would probably disintegrate upon our attempting to pick them up. The room had an opening that led into a huge cavern which was lit by an abundance of bioluminescent algae which coated much of the cave walls as well as a small river that flowed in and out of a set of pools. The water glowed a bright aqua color from this algae which made the water cloudy and opaque. There were large quartz crystals embedded in the rock along with iron pyrite and veins of gold. The view was spectacular. We wondered aloud what had been in those shackles. We suspected it was the creature from the engravings or perhaps a sacrificial victim. There were footpaths that ran between the rock and stalagmites that formed the floor of the cavern. We split up and each proceeded down different paths giving ourselves exactly 10 minutes time to meet back at the foot of the stairwell. Our air would be running out by then and we weren't going to risk trying to breathe the ancient air down there. We'd have to head back soon. We took air, water, and sand samples as well as photographs using old-fashioned, non-electronic cameras loaded with a special film designed for low light. The cavern seemed to go back at least 300 feet, with a ceiling around 30 feet high. The width I estimated in the neighborhood of 50 to 60 feet. I could hear water pouring into water coming from the rear of the cave and so I headed back to ascertain whether or not there was some kind of waterfall back there someplace. I rounded a bend in the footpath and saw the source of the sound. 
A two-foot diameter flow of water was pouring out of the sidewall of the cave about 20 feet up, arcing into a pool that was recessed in the floor. Behind the waterfall there were several skeletons chained up to the back wall. I started to take some photos of this when I felt something wrap around my right ankle. Looking down I beheld a black tentacle protruding up out of the pool which had wrapped around my lower leg several turns. I instinctively pulled my leg away but it tightened its grip as I did so. I sounded a distress call from a noise-making device we each carried on our wetsuit as I struck the tentacle with my fist in the hope it might release me. It pulled back a bit which caused me to fall onto my back. I reached for my rock pick as the thing rose up out of the water. It was hideous. It used its tentacles for support on the black rocky ground. Its head was like an octopus only the mouth was front-facing. It growled, bearing what reminded me of shark teeth with several rows going towards the back of its throat. It started to pull me towards it and lift me up off the ground when Brent reached me with David not far behind. He struck the tentacle that held me with his rock pick letting loose a glowing aqua-colored fluid from the creature's flesh. It immediately dropped me and turned its attention to Brent. It's saucer-sized, Amber eyes twitched back and forth as it examined him a moment before it lashed out with two of its tentacles. As it did, both of these appendages projected long, thin, sharp, white-ribbed rods from their tips which pierced Brent's torso. The creature then lifted him up and pulled him in towards its gaping and shrieking mouth. David had arrived at my location by then and began to drag my body backwards away from the thing as it put Brent's head into its mouth and closed it in a circular fashion around his neck where its teeth cut through Brent's wetsuit and flesh. He flayed around trying to break free for a moment before the creature had bitten his head clean off. We could only watch and take a few photos from a distance as it used its tentacles to peel back his wetsuit and munch on Brent's body like a human would when shelling a shrimp. I got to my feet as David announced that we needed to let the strike team handle it. The two of us headed for the stairwell as fast as we could. Before we could get there, the creature swam along the river next to us and jumped out of the water, tackling David while thrusting its pointy rods through him just like it did to Brent. David and the beast fell over sideways and it proceeded to feed on him. It did so with such ferocity and speed that I had no time to try to save him. All I could do was run and take advantage of the fact that it would be stalled from killing me for a minute as it feasted on David. I glanced back as I ran and saw that the creature had put David's lifeless body down and had begun to pursue me. I guess it didn't want to lose any of that rare human meal it had discovered. I suppose it had been feeding on the algae in the water for so long that the taste of blood once again after all these years was too much for it to resist. Just as I was reaching the opening into the small chamber where the stairwell was, the thing flung itself at me and I landed on my back. I had my rock pick in hand by then so I started to bang its pointed tip into the meat of one of the monster's tentacles. It withdrew it but as it did, the thing wrapped its body around my upper torso and pressed its flesh against the back of my neck where I could feel tiny bristle-like hairs stick into my spine. Like little needles they inserted deep into my nervous system where the creature hijacked my motor control. It used this method to couple with my brain and our minds became one mind. I knew its entire history, thoughts, and experiences. I understood its deepest motivations and desires and it knew mine. It used my legs to walk as it rode me like a horse back up the stairwell, into the chamber above, and down the ramp to the open sea outside. It hadn't been out of the cavern in over a millennia as it needed a human host to climb the stairs. I could feel its excitement as we exited the structure and proceeded to kill the three men in the other squad who had been waiting for our return. Knowing the lethality of the strike team it opted to steal an inflatable motorized raft and sink the boat by having me chip a hole in the hull with my rock pick. The sound of my doing this alerted the seals inside to our presence and two of them entered the water to check it out as we sped off in the raft. I got an oversized trench coat to hide the creature on my back so I could move about among the masses without causing a stir. I haven't checked in with the Navy in several weeks now and am currently sitting in a cheap hotel room in Barcelona typing this. While I would like to be rid of this thing, I also have to admit that I feel its pleasure at the taste of human blood and meat. Our minds have become one and I am as much it as I am me.
I know the military will have sent a wet team to track me down by now and I know they will probably eventually find me. I have to stay on the move. The trail of dead will soon give away my whereabouts as the method of the kills is unique and leaves its own signature. I'm putting this story online as a last ditch effort to get a message through to my dear mother, Jane, the only person I still feel connected to and whom I miss dearly. I love you mom. I'm sorry about all of this and maybe someday if I'm lucky we can meet again. I've already left too many bodies here, so I'm leaving Barcelona tonight before daybreak. But first I feed again. I like to spend some alone time occasionally. Last fall, in October 2023, I spent a day in the Allegheny National Forest in northwest Pennsylvania. I like the forest because of the tall trees and nature, I'm able to relax and think to myself without interference. I got there early in the morning just as dawn was breaking. I got out of my truck and hiked to the Rimrock Overlook. There was a foggy blanket draping the Allegheny Reservoir. I had my binoculars and my camera and wanted to go deeper into the woods. The daylight was just peeking through the forest and the wildlife was beginning to wake and become active. As I was watching the birds with my binoculars, out of nowhere this weird sound came. It was like a mix of a deep growl and a long moaning that just echoed through the forest. It was so surprising and different from the usual forest noises that it actually gave me a creepy feeling. My heart was racing while I stood there not moving, still holding the binoculars to my eyes looking around anxiously trying to figure out where that sound was coming from. Then I saw it. It looked like someone or something moving past the dense underbrush. It was huge and somewhat hidden in the fog. As soon as I noticed it though it vanished. I was freaked out. I thought that maybe it was a bear or an elk. But that unfamiliar noise had me thinking that it was something out of the ordinary. After a few minutes of whatever it was vanishing, the forest went back to normal. I was left standing there equal parts scared and curious. Then it showed itself again, but further to my right, I guess it was about 50 yards away from me. Whatever it was it appeared as tall as a young tree, around 8 feet tall with shoulders over 4 feet wide. It moved in a way that was smooth but also very strange. I didn't want to blink and miss it. The creature quickly moved around bushes and jumped over logs surprisingly quiet for its size. The fur looked rough and its colors shifted between light brown and red when the sunlight hit it. I could see it had a wide back, big muscular arms, and a flat face. The odor that I was then smelling is what really scared me. It was faint, like a rotten smell that seemed to stick in my nose. It made me nervous and my heart started pounding. I wanted to run back to my truck but I was just too curious. Then suddenly the thing turned its head towards me and I just froze. I briefly saw its huge forehead and distinct brow. But then it was gone. It simply vanished into the thick forest just as quietly as it had first appeared. I saw something weird that I can't explain. Was it a Sasquatch? I finally decided to walk back to my truck. My mind was going crazy. Every little sound sent an alert and I didn't feel safe anymore. That night at home I experienced a series of bizarre dreams. It was as if the creature was communicating with me. I know that sounds crazy, but that is what happened. In fact, it took several weeks until the dream stopped. I had this overwhelming feeling that I was supposed to return to find answers. I have resisted returning to the area because of my fear of encountering the creature or, maybe, something more terrifying. I have so many encounters with the weird and strange I don't even know where to start but I think you will like this story. This crazy scary dog stopped me from drinking one night. This happened in Port Orchard, Washington around 2009. I was in a program called Drug Court which required me to take random UAs, stay sober, and pretty much get my life back together because I had got caught up with a marijuana charge in 2008. So instead of doing the two years in prison they wanted to give me I had the opportunity to do a program of recovery called drug court. I jumped at the opportunity. I was sober for about 9 or 10 months and was in a relationship with the lady that I am still friends with today. I tend to have a sixth sense about things and I had a bad feeling she was cheating on me. 
and I was looking for an excuse to go drink. I made my mind up and started to leave the house which was up a steep hill towards a dark road next to a park and I would have to continue on past the park and down another steep hill. Once I got to the top of my hill to walk towards the park I was stopped suddenly in my tracks because about 50 or 60 yards away from me was a dark black muscular vicious looking pit. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Pitbull or Rottweiler. I'm not completely sure and I did not want to find out. It was just sitting in the middle of the road blocking my path to the bar. So I said nope and turned around and walked back down my hill through my backyard over a fence through my neighbor's yard to get to a gravel road that led to about the middle of the other hill I had to walk down to get to the bar. Now this was quite a long way away from where I originally planned to walk because I don't feel like going out of my way and walking through neighbor's yards. So I'm walking down the gravel road and all of a sudden I see the same dog just walk up to the end of the gravel road which was probably 30 or 40 yards away from me and just sit in the middle of the gravel road growling at me. I was scared to death that this dog was going to attack me. But it just sat there and I could hear it growling from that far away. I'm 100% positive it was the same dog. But how did this dog even know where I was headed? How did that dog even know to stop me the first time? I was completely blown away and confused. I just wanted to get drunk and forget about my girlfriend for the time being. So to keep a long story short I turned around walked back through my neighbor's yards over the fence and back to my house and called my sponsor. I did not drink that night. And I stayed sober for another year and a half after that. Not sure if that was my guardian angel or what. I've told the story before in AA meetings and I'll end with this. Whenever I want to screw my life up it seems like God sends evil demon dogs after me. No joke. I've never seen the dog since and I really hope I don't again. I'm a retired federal law enforcement officer. I also did 18 years in the US Army as an MP before cancer forced me out. I still work for the DOD. I would like to share two short stories. I was one of those unlucky ones who while serving in Kansas had the misfortune of seeing one of these creatures decide to enter the perimeter of our military base. It made sounds that I can't even describe, guttural growling and bone rattling roars and screams as it went over a 15 foot fence. We had more than one occurrence of this type of behavior at this base. We're always ordered to ignore it and never document anything about it, except for a verbal report to the chain of command, but nothing more. When I was stationed there we had a private fresh from basic that was on duty and witnessed a display at the perimeter fence. The private freaked out and abandoned his post. The next morning he was sent for medical evaluation. I think the kid had a mental breakdown over what he witnessed. He never returned to our unit. If Uncle Sam didn't want anyone saying anything, that was the normal routine. I was 24 when this happened in 1994. What I saw was an 8 to 9 foot tall black with some gray around its face and on its chest. It would make these terrible noises and look straight into the CCTV cameras, then charge the fence. If nothing happened after two or three times it would charge and go right over the fence without any effort at all. If a mobile unit appeared when it was screaming and roaring it would throw rocks or smaller trees at the fence or sometimes go over the fence towards the vehicle. The only time I ever saw it leave without making a big show was once a helicopter buzzed the area with a spotlight and that thing hightailed it back into the trees and didn't return. A big bright light from the sky makes them feel the way they make us feel. The second story was in 2018 in Kansas, south of I-70 about 30 miles from Lake Milford. I was working late and had about a 40-minute drive home on rural county roads, some paved and some gravel. The area has rolling limestone cliffs and lots of dense trees, pastures, and hayfields. It was about 10.30 p.m. 
On a winter evening, cold but no snow on the ground. I came around a curve on this two-lane county road that had only a few feet on each side before the trees started. No ditches to mention. I saw what I thought was a tree extremely close to the left side of the road. I had time enough for the thought to enter my mind that's a big tall stump, no branches. Then the eyes became visible and I thought I was going to have heart failure. The intensity of fear and sheer terror that gripped me I never felt before, even in combat. As I looked at those eyes I drifted over towards it unintentionally and as I passed, if it had reached out it could have touched my side mirror. I immediately swerved back to my lane and looked into both my side mirror and rearview mirror but couldn't see it. I have nightmares of that drive home regularly now. I understand now what witnesses describe after an encounter like that. I'm a veteran with six deployments between Iraq and Afghanistan and I was in some major engagements over there and I can tell you nothing in my life has ever affected me like that drive home. To this day I will not drive that road after dark and I've had that creepy feeling of being watched at my farm numerous times since that night. I have two cattle dogs and I won't go outside without them close to me. I always carry a gun on me and have a rifle or shotgun in my truck. Honestly, L don't think it would matter if this being decided to have it a human. It's game over. I remember experiencing a medical procedure as a child that I did not have in this reality. I recall, vividly, the dark red tinged room around me and laying on a metal table. While on the slab, I was being prodded and touched all over by seemingly giant praying mantis beings. I remember being horrified that they had bent arms, large black eyes, and insect bodies. I remember replicating their posture which was peering over with their arms by the side of the body and hooked wrists, T-Rex arms. I remember waking up while it was still dark, that same night, and my clothes were inside out. I even remember that I awoke feeling desperately thirsty and found my blue water bottle was no longer on the bed as it had been thrown under the bed frame. I remember feeling like I was being watched and the room felt weird. I felt confused because I had gone to sleep holding the bottle and had been lying under the blanket. Even to my young self, it was a shock to be tangled in blankets half flung off the bed. I've always been a deep sleeper and I usually wake up in the exact position that I've fallen asleep in. People have commented on how still I am while I sleep my entire life and I've explained it's probably because I'm deaf which means sound doesn't wake me and I don't remain in a lighter stage of sleep. This also means it is hard for me to wake up as I'm so deep asleep so it's notable when I suddenly jerk awake. After waking on the other side of the bed with a completely disheveled bedspread, I was petrified of needles and blood tests. I suddenly developed a phobia and had to be held down to be given injections or needles. I recall my mum stating, you used to be fine with needles and watch them do it. Why are you acting like this? Stop thrashing and trying to run away. What happened to you? I told my mother about them and called them disgusting cockroaches. This was before I grew into adulthood and saw a photo for the first time depicting mantis beings, she said it must have been a dream. The needle phobia became a huge proponent to my medical fears which grew bigger and bigger. I became scared of the dentist, refused medical examinations or tests, and resisted medical visits. I started having dreams about medical teams coming into our home wearing white lab coats, and feeling terrified when I saw them taking my family members to run tests. The dreams were nightmares that continued for a few years after this incident. I remember the beings as detached and determined to meet their experiments or tests. These seemed human, but they were cold and detached. After some time, I recalled a memory of being in a medical setting with a huge light above my head and multiple faces holding instruments near my head and face. I asked my mum about it for years, even in my teens and early twenties, and she maintained that it never happened. As I've grown older, I've always remembered an even earlier encounter. I'm still wearing a nappy and I'm on a table slab with the prey mantis beings around me. I don't remember waking up afterward or being fully conscious of what happened before or after hence starting with the early encounter remembered with more detail. However, it wasn't an isolated memory with the mantis beings. I did a meditation a few years ago to try and calm myself down before an experience with a needle. 
I was unwell for a while and needed weekly cannulations. I hadn't received a needle since I was 8 years old because the phobia became so severe. I refused blood tests and would have obscene reactions in the dentist when they would insert needles until they started giving me gas to calm down. So, during the meditation, I saw the mortifying ordeal of being on a slab with mantis beings around me and tools being pushed into my body. I could see instruments going into my belly button, the top of my head, and down my throat. I was nearly going to stop the meditation but then, in an instant, the procedure was over. The next part of the memory resurfaced. Suddenly, the mantis beings didn't seem so terrifying. I was taken into a standing tank or cubicle that scanned me. It looked like a liquid but it didn't feel solid, squishy, or wet. They showed me where my DNA needed to be fixed as there was something wrong with my genes. The chamber was a full-body scanning instrument that could completely penetrate and view your entire DNA code and body. I was able to see an implant in my brain. It has been some time, but I remember something about an implantation in my brain which was to help reprogram and update my DNA. After this meditation, my needle phobia went away as I dealt with medical teams. Something to note was that I did that meditation which revealed faulty genetics before receiving a diagnosis for faulty genetics. I thought that was interesting. I've had countless UFO sky sightings and strange encounters but this was the most real experience that was rich and vivid in detail, as if it was the same as recalling a birthday party as a child. I've been in contact with terrestrial aliens since I was a child. It was weird lights and apparitions when I was younger. Around the age of 18, it started turning into physical abductions at night and randomly seeing crafts periodically. This carried on all throughout my life until the age of 32. At that time it turned into something completely different. A week before I turned 32 my body started transforming. I have holographic orbs and serpents swirling around me now. It's an energy that I do not completely understand. It's part of me and incomparable to anything I've ever seen. It changes color and can move through solid objects, it reacts intelligently. This energy is inside and outside of me at the same time and it never leaves me or stops existing. The energy regenerates my body and mind. It heals me and can heal others. At one point during the transformation, there was an etheric injection in my arm and I felt a spark jump into my body. It shocked me. Now my eyes glow differently and I feel like I have more energy and soul than I did before. There's also a lot of energy to work with my chakras while lying in bed at night. This transformation has been going on for almost 10 months now. It will be a year around the end of December 2016. The race of aliens that I'm in contact with is the reptilians. The reptilians sent me holographs to communicate, they showed me our history through holographs. We evolved from earth reptiles and then there was some kind of war that's still being fought. From what I've gathered, I'm a reptilian or human hybrid. There's a hybridization program right here on earth with RH negative blood types and other hybrids do exist. Unfortunately, most have been killed, or haven't evolved enough mentally, physically, and spiritually, or want nothing to do with the reptilians out of fear or being brainwashed by organized religion. As of right now, there are only a handful of awakened or empowered hybrids. So there it is. I'm in direct contact with reptilians. They exist and we've formed a bond, they're really good to me. They guide, protect, and upgrade me. I wouldn't be alive without them. They've even saved my life multiple times. I trust them more than I do most humans. When the reptilians manifest on earth, sometimes the females will come down to play. They look like the Celtic or Nordic race. I can always tell when it's one of them because the women are always perfect, with a glow to them and stars in their eyes. It will only be for some time, a few days or months, and then after that, they just disappear, never to be seen again. So basically from what I've gathered we have a race of reptilian or Nordic terrestrial genetic and technological alien masterminds right here with us on Earth. I stand by this firmly. I've spent almost 33 years of my life spinning in their web.
I've never been the type of girl who gets scared easily and what's more, I never believed in paranormal stuff and creatures, like vampires, werewolves, etc., until I witnessed it with my own eyes. So, in 2012, me and my family went on a trip to Romania. We basically explored the country because my parents were really interested in its culture. After we visited Bistritza we decided to stop and have a picnic outside the town, even then my gut feeling gave me a warning that something was gonna happen. We stopped near a town called Slatnita. It all happened right next to a forest, there were special benches and a table in the middle of them, and a really small place where you could park your car. So we were just eating and chatting with each other when two people appeared literally out of the blue, I guess that they came from the forest. They stood right behind our parents' backs and they were just staring at us for like a minute. A guy and a girl. The guy looked like he was in his late 20s and the girl looked about 17 to 19 years old. They wore totally black clothes. The girl wore a black long dress, by the way I've just realized that it looked kind of like the dress that Morticia from the Adams family had, a corset, and very long black hair, literally so long, down to her thighs. He wore something like black pants and a black cloak with weird embroidery. He was tall and had long black hair just like the girl. But I mean you may think now, maybe they were just some goth teens who took a walk in the forest, but there are extremely weird things about them. They both were very pale and I don't think they had any makeup, because when they came up to us I could see veins on their necks and hands. The girl had very long and sharp nails without any nail polish. Their teeth. They never showed them, so I could only slightly see sharp teeth on their upper jaw when they spoke. I didn't like them since the moment I took a first glance at them. I can't explain it, there was just something so scary and intimidating about the way they looked at us. When they started approaching us I felt frightened. When I talked to my sister about it she told me that she felt the same. When they came up to us they asked if we were tourists. My parents said yes and they the girl just said, oh, be careful here. Then they turned around and went in the direction where they came from. I was watching them this whole time, but my mom suddenly distracted me, and when I wanted to see them walking away they just disappeared. Literally like they never even were here. Now I'm 26 and I still have no freaking idea who they were and where did they come from. But when I recall those memories and see them in my head it's still so frightening. I have been travel nursing in remote northern communities in British Columbia since 2020. In the summer of 2021, I took an assignment in Fort Nelson, British Columbia. I decided to borrow the staff vehicle from the hospital I was working at and use my one day off to travel up to the Liar River. It takes about 5 hours to get there from Fort Nelson. I took in the scenery on the drive up the sheer remote and rugged nature of the land was palpable. I was on my way back home and close to the 529 km mark on the Alaska Highway when all of a sudden a feeling came over me for reasons unknown. I began to slow the car down. I was going quite slow when I saw something on all fours on the right-hand side of the road. It was about 100 feet away at this point it was moving towards the road, coming out of the bush very quickly on the tips of its fingers and toes. Then it stopped at the edge of the highway. At this time I had come to a full diagonal stop in the oncoming lane. The creature was now about 20 feet away. It got up on two legs and appeared to be somewhere around 9 maybe 10 feet tall. It was covered in matted grey or brown hair that looked like dreadlocks. It had a solid muscular build and it walked in a very strange manner that is hard to describe if you haven't seen it. It crossed the paved part of the highway in four strides. It did not look directly at me but was very aware of my presence and I felt it inside my mind when it walked in front of the car. I was completely frozen. I could have moved if I wanted to and here's the wildest part. All parts of this creature were partially transparent. These parts would fade from visible to transparent over its entire body as it crossed the road. The transparent parts of the creature appeared blurry or almost made of water if that makes sense. It was the strangest thing I've ever seen in my life. I watched it dash under the trees on the other side of the road and after a while, I collected myself and drove the remaining 75 kilometers back to Fort Nelson.
My roommate was selling our old fridge. He didn't let me know that someone was coming to get it one day. And I pull up to see someone loading up the fridge in our carport with no one home. I'm naturally defensive, cause what would you do if some strange guy was randomly in your carport loading up a fridge? Anyways I open with excuse me. What do you think you're doing? Long and short of it is that the dude hadn't paid for it yet nor confirmed with my roommate or owner that he was coming. We still sold him the fridge at the end of the day. I'm a 22 year old female for context. While I was living at uni by myself I messaged a man who had a PS2 for sale on Facebook, it was a really good price and looked really good condition. I really should have known it was too good to be true. Anyway, I message him about it and he says he will drop it off straight after work, and that he is working on a building site near where I live. All good right? Except he kept saying he will do me a solid and drop it right to my door, even though I repeatedly said I would meet him at a nearby car park. He said okay fine. He wasn't happy about it but whatever, I was getting my PS2 and I was buzzing about it. So a few hours go by and I walk up the hill to chill with my friend Adam who's a bloke and the same age as me. I flippantly mention that I'm meeting this man for the PS2 and Adam is all like? You can't just meet a random in a car park. I'm also very petite do I guess if someone wanted to grab me they could, which was Adam's thinking. I agree to let Adam come with me and actually it was a good idea. The man texts me again asking if we are still good to meet and what will I be wearing. I thought to recognize me. So I tell him what I'll be wearing and what I look like, and then I mention I'll be with a stocky, dark-haired man with a beard. He stops replying, and deletes his Facebook account. I never hear from him again. I can't help but think something dodgy was going to happen and my friend making me tell the guy I wouldn't be alone prevented it from happening. Apologizing now since I am a horrible writer but, there is a small town called Gilgo Beach in Long Island, New York. It's pretty secluded and runs along a the back of a highway. For those of you who don't know, a few years back there were many dismembered bodies found along the highway in burlap bags. It seemed that the murderer was targeting prostitutes and finding them via Craigslist and other websites. They never found the killer but it is believed to have been linked to a series of similar murders in Atlantic City. Anyway, one night in the middle of winter at about 2am my friend and I decide to go to the Fire Island Lighthouse which is about 5 minutes from Gilgo Beach and along the same highway. There are deer usually hanging around there at night and we wanted to feel them lol. Anyway, to get to this lighthouse you have to drive over a long narrow bridge and once you get over that bridge there is a roundabout around a big needle like water tower and the rest is beach. I will attach link of picture, there are no houses or stores. It's dark and there is no one there at night. So we get off the bridge and onto the roundabout when I pull up behind an older looking dark colored car on the farthest side of this roundabout. Mind you there are never any cars here this late in this season. A woman in a long coat gets out of this car walks in front of it towards the middle of the roundabout which is just the bottom of the water tower. The car speeds off fast and leaves the women. She is sitting there now all along in this secluded area in the middle of the winter late at night. My cousin and I circled a few times and she just stood there at the bottom of the water tower. She was there at least 30 minutes since we circled waited, then circled a few more times. This woman would have had to walk at least 30 to 35 minutes to get to the first residence. And at least an hour to get to a store or a public place. We ended up calling the cops and never found out what happened. We still think if we didn't show up this woman could have been seriously hurt but since we pulled up maybe the guy got spooked and let her out. But why wouldn't she scream for help? But to the person in the dark car and the creepy women who stood at the bottom of the tower, let's not meet unless you are a victim. Not super bad but long story short, I sold a car to a lady and her kids came with her. They were in their 20s. A few months later, I get a text from the daughter saying the woman passed away and they never took it to get tags and needed a copy of the title and would pay for me to get it since by law I had to be the one to get it. I met them and they gave me money, 
I got the title and sign it over again technically. Then a few weeks later the son texts me thanking me and shit and then suddenly asks if my wife and I want to have a threesome. I nicely tell him to f off and he calls me leaving me 5 voicemail of him crying and apologizing saying he's drunk and misses his mom. I had a Blackberry in 2014. I actually liked it quite a lot, but the apps were no longer being supported and every time I went outside, the sun would move my cursor around because of the heat. So, my cell phone situation was suboptimal, and I was a grad student who needed to check email and do things on the go, like text people coherent sentences without my cursor flying everywhere. I found a deal for a $300 iPhone 5, top notch at the time, on Craigslist, and contacted the seller. We agreed to meet at a local grocery store, and he said his mom had appendicitis so he couldn't stay very long. I was very grateful that he was taking the time to meet me while his mom was in the hospital, so I baked cookies for the family and met up with what ended up being a 16-year-old kid at a grocery store in Illinois. He gave the phone, which was dead because he said his mom ran over his charger with a vacuum cleaner. I paid him and gave him the cookies, took the phone home, and it worked but wasn't unlocked as advertised so it was unusable for me. Turns out it was stolen. I cried in my car for an hour. It still upsets me to this day because I try to have a lot of faith in humanity. I made his mom cookies. She probably wasn't even sick. First day on a new job a couple of years ago. During orientation, my phone starts ringing. Not a number I recognize, so I ignore it. It's already on vibrate. Then it rings again. And again. By the time I'm out of orientation, I have dozens of voicemails, but more meet and greets with coworkers, etc. When I finally get to check my voicemail after lunch, the voicemail is full. Scores of men leaving messages for Miss Becky, some leaving multiple messages getting increasingly desperate. I've had the phone number for years, so something must be up. I try to Google my phone number, but the calls are coming in so fast I'm constantly interrupted and I'm trying not to look like a bad employee on my first day. When I finally get a search completed, it pulls up a Craigslist ad with a man posing for pictures that no straight man should ever see with my phone number. The call slowed down by the end of the day and within a few days stopped completely and I never heard from Miss Becky again. Mine is a good story, last year I wanted a PS4 so did research and found one with GTA 5, Knack and Battlefield Hardline for $300 on Craigslist and next thing is he knocks on the door of my house 2 hours later and I have the check for $300, Behind my micro so no shady crap, he comes in and explains that he wiped it it has controller HDMI and everything, stayed to help set it up and said he liked my house and he hopes to have a house similar to my parents, I'm 16 then, parents help transactions, and explained that he is getting a new job next week and needed the money for his family so I gave him an extra $50 for his situation, good deal. The night was dark and stormy, the kind of night that sends shivers down your spine even before anything unsettling happens. I had just finished chatting with my friend, Jake, over the phone. He sounded distraught, and his words echoed in my mind as I made my way home through the deserted streets. He had been searching for a good deal on a MacBook online, scouring various websites to find the perfect match for his budget. Eventually, he stumbled upon a seemingly too-good-to-be-true offer, a brand new MacBook at a fraction of the retail price. The catch? The transaction had to happen in person, in an abandoned warehouse on the outskirts of town. Against my advice, Jake decided to go for it. Greed clouded his judgment, and he found himself in a dimly lit, desolate place, surrounded by shadows that seemed to whisper tales of regret. The air was thick with tension as he handed over the cash to the mysterious seller. But things took a horrifying turn. Suddenly, out of the darkness, emerged a group of masked figures. They moved like ghosts, swift and silent. Before Jake could comprehend the danger, he felt a searing pain in his right hand. 
A gunshot echoed through the warehouse, and he crumpled to the ground, clutching his mutilated hand. The assailants vanished into the night, leaving Jake bleeding and broken. He managed to crawl out of the warehouse and call for help. By the time I reached the hospital, his once intact hand was reduced to a gruesome sight, only three fingers remained, a cruel reminder of the price he paid for his online bargain. As I sat by Jake's bedside, the weight of the story settled in the room like a thick fog. The incident haunted him, not just physically but mentally. The trauma of that night played out in his restless eyes, and the shadows seemed to dance menacingly on the hospital walls. In the following days, strange occurrences unfolded around Jake. He would wake up to the sound of distant whispers, his dreams plagued by masked figures reaching out for him. Paranoid and sleep-deprived, he became convinced that the ghosts of that forsaken warehouse were haunting him, seeking retribution for disturbing their malevolent domain. I tried to dismiss his fears as mere post-traumatic stress, but as the days passed, even I couldn't ignore the eerie atmosphere that clung to him. Objects would inexplicably move in his presence, and the air grew icy cold whenever he spoke of that fateful night. It was as if the spirits of the warehouse had latched onto him, determined to make him pay for the intrusion. One night, as I sat with Jake in his dimly lit apartment, the room plunged into darkness. The air became heavy, and a cold wind whispered through the cracks in the window. Suddenly, the flickering light of a single candle illuminated the room, casting eerie shadows on the walls. And there, in the corner, the masked figures materialized. They were ethereal, their forms shifting between reality and nightmare. Their eyes, empty voids, locked onto Jake, who trembled in terror. The room echoed with their ghostly whispers, recounting the details of that ill-fated transaction. I tried to grab Jake and escape, but an invisible force held me back. The figures approached him slowly, their spectral hands outstretched. And then, with a bone-chilling wail, they vanished, leaving behind a chilling silence. The room returned to its normal state, but Jake was changed. His eyes, once filled with life, now reflected the horror of the supernatural encounter. He spoke of a curse, a consequence for seeking a forbidden bargain in that forsaken warehouse. From that day forward, Jake lived in perpetual fear, haunted by the shadows of that macabre night. The warehouse became a place of dread, a portal to a realm where the price of greed was paid in blood and torment. And as for me, I couldn't shake the feeling that those masked figures lingered in the shadows, watching, waiting for the next unsuspecting soul to venture into their unholy domain.